We are very excited to announce we're hosting our first Meetup in the Left Field 2022 on October 21st in Columbus, Ohio. We have Zoomed together for two years, and it is beyond time to meet face-to-face. The primary purpose of this meeting will be to meet your fellow left fielders, as well as to meet and interact with some of our community's favorite sponsors and professionals. The plan is to host a special infielder event Thursday night, October 20th, which will include appetizers, drinks, and the opportunity to connect with your Zoom friends. That will be followed by a full day of networking and meetings on Friday, October 21st. The cost to attend the event is $250. Members of the infield community will get a $100 discount and a free month of membership if they sign up before September 15th. We hope to see you soon in the left field. Hello, left fielders. Welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Our community is focused on networking and education to help people invest passively and think differently. Let's go. Massively increase this trend, and you can imagine why. A study before COVID said that it's 47% less expensive to take an RV and camping trip than a comparable car hotel vacation, and 62% less expensive than a comparable air flying and hotel vacation. We're really, really excited about this asset class. I'll take a breath so you can ask me more questions, but uh, we love RVs. Since you are here listening to this podcast, there's a good chance you're investing with a group of people. Whether you're investing with family or friends or like-minded people in the left field investors community, group investing is a strategy that can get you into more deals, help you diversify, and go beyond what you can achieve by yourself. Before TribeVest came along, it was difficult to overcome all the hurdles associated with group investing. It was basically a strategy reserved for the wealthy. Not anymore. Now, TribeVest helps your group with everything from incorporation, collaboration, banking, and equity management tools all in a single place. So you can focus on building wealth with the people you know, like, and trust. I'm using TribeVest for all five, now six, of my investor tribes. It's a game changer. Check them out at TribeVest.com. You are listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast, powered by TribeVest. The mission of Left Field Investors is to build a community of like-minded individuals interested in creating financial freedom through passively investing in real assets that generate real cash flow. In this podcast, Jim Piper will interview passive investors, syndicators, and others who will share their journey with a focus on helping the passive real estate investor learn and become part of the left field community. Hi, this is Scott Royal Smith from Royal Legal Solutions, and you're listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. I'm really excited today to have Paul Moore with us. He is the founder and managing partner of Wellings Capital, which is a real estate private equity firm focused on mobile home parks, self-storage, and RV parks. He's an author, a podcaster, a regular contributor to Bigger Pockets, and an experienced real estate investor. He was a guest on our show on episode 24, and he's going to be the keynote speaker for our upcoming in-person meetup in the left field in October in Columbus, Ohio. Paul, welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast again. Jim, it's great to be here. Man, what an honor. We are pleased that you're here again. Usually I ask for the full backstory, your financial story, how you got to where you are. I'm going to tell listeners, if you want the full story, go back to episode 24, listen to that, and then come back here. So can you give us the brief background of how you kind of got into real estate and syndication and, and how you got to where you are? I sold my company at age 33 to a public firm. Very fortunate to do that in Detroit 25 years ago in 97. And I started investing in real estate to protect and grow my own wealth. And as I talked about on the last show, I thought, I'm a full-time investor now. But I really wasn't, Jim. I was a full-time speculator, and I didn't know the difference whatever years ago. And I lost a lot of money, and I made a lot of money as well. It wasn't as fun as I thought to get fun and excitement and a thrill and a charge, all those 
antonyms or synonyms, I should say, out of my investing the same way I did as an entrepreneur, I found that there's a big difference between investing and speculating. And we talked about that on the last show. After a lot of pain and over 20 years, I worked my way from all kinds of residential deals into commercial. I ended up writing a book called The Perfect Investment on Multifamily. I found that it wasn't perfect, at least for me, because we found a lot of people were outbidding us by 10, 20, even 30% on deals that made no sense to us. And they made millions of dollars while this rising tide has lifted all boats these last few years. But we expanded out into self-storage, mobile home parks, RV parks, and some multifamily in our funds. We're on our sixth fund now at Wellings Capital. So that's the whole 25-year journey in two minutes. That's great. And as I said, if someone wants to hear the whole journey, we can go back to episode 24. But you mentioned speculation versus investing. And this is a critical topic. And I know we talked a little about it last time, but I want to dig in a little bit more. What types of assets do you see as speculation? And then what type of assets do you see as investments? Because I, I think my feeling is an investment is something that produces cash flow for you, and you're not just banking on the upside. And speculation is it produces almost nothing. You get no current benefit, but you're hoping, crossing your fingers, this is the big payout. So can you talk a little bit about the assets you put in each category? I don't know if it's an absolutely perfect analogy in every case, but I'll tell you, I completely agree with you. I think true wealth is having assets that produce cash flow. And if it's predictable cash flow, and if it's growing cash flow and appreciating, all the better. Investing in those types of assets. Paul Samuelson was America's first Nobel Peace Prize winner in economics. And he said, investing should be boring. It should be like watching paint dry or watching grass grow. If you want excitement, take $800 and go to Las Vegas. And another famous investor, George Soros, said, if you're having fun, you're probably not really investing. I mean, I'm not saying it's not fun to invest, but honestly, it is sometimes a little more boring. And I do agree that cash flow should be the key to that. Uh, Buffett, you know, Warren Buffett said, this is going to offend a lot of people, but I bought a little Bitcoin myself as a flyer. But he said, I wouldn't give $20 for all the Bitcoin on the planet. The way he thinks is, again, if it's speculative, he wants nothing to do with it. And he's done pretty well for himself. Buffett Law, if Berkshire Hathaway lost 99.4% of its value, it would still the S&P 500 over the last 57 years, I think it is. He's done pretty well with that, that investing versus speculating mindset. I don't think it's wrong to speculate. Building a ground-up self-storage facility or a ground-up multifamily or a ground-up light industrial park, I mean, those they have an, a sense of speculation, but they also have a very much higher reward at the end. I think of speculation more as assets that have no tangible cash flow to create a value. So Bitcoin, and again, I don't mean to knock it, but it was up to, what, 62,000 at one point. And of course, in the last several years, it's been as low as 3,000. I hear it's hovering around 20,000. I don't pay much attention to it. It has no tangible cash flow to create a value. And therefore, in Buffett's mind, it's a pure speculation. And I have to say, I agree. I agree with that as well. I, I do. I don't, I'm not going to say invest in Bitcoin. I do speculate in Bitcoin. And part of it is it's fun, as you said. And I have a small portion of my uh, capital that I reserve for fun speculation. That's, that's swinging for the fences. I love how you said if you want to create wealth, you need assets that produce cash flow. Maybe investing in speculation, they don't, they aren't asset class dependent. Because if you invest in Berkshire, maybe that's more, even though you're not getting cash flow, maybe that might be more investing. Whereas if you invest meme stocks, that's the speculation. The same as if you put money into a development deal, that's speculation on some level. But if you put it into a deal that's already cash flowing, there you're investing. So I think it's not maybe asset class dependent. It's what the project is or what the actual deal is. That's exactly right. And just I just want to point out Berkshire Hathaway has, last I checked, about 115 investments in every one of those cash flow. Even though Berkshire's not cash flowing net to the investor. They're reinvesting. In fact, Buffett made one distribution in 1967. I think it was six cents a share or something, and he's regretted it ever since. He really feels like he can 
better reinvest that money than hand it to investors to reinvest. And that's one of the reasons we just added a distribution reinvestment plan to our new fund. But that's another story. I like that, the way you think of that with Berkshire. Thinking of the entire economy, I guess, now I want to switch a little bit and talk about inflation. I've heard you say that that can be an advantage to investors. Can you explain how inflation can help real estate investors? I remember 1979, 1982. I remember when December 1980, when Paul Volcker from the Fed pushed the prime rate, I believe, to 21%. Crazy times. When Ronald Reagan partly got elected based on his campaign platform that inflation is always evil. It's a thief. It's a robber. It destroys people's retirements. And I mean, there were people who were getting pension checks, as they used to call them back in the late 70s, that would cover two months of their mortgage or rent. And now all of a sudden, it was covering two weeks of their mortgage or rent. And so it was horrible. But honestly, for real estate investors, it can be harnessed to for good. There was a great economist from the 16 or 1700s who said, if you can figure out who is creating the cash flow, who's creating the currency, and who has got the power, and that would be the Federal Reserve and the U.S. government. If you can figure out how to be on their side, how to harness basically what they're doing, you can be on the same side as them, then you can actually create great wealth. If you can lock in to low fixed interest rates, and let's say it's a 10-year deal or a 30-year deal. If you can lock in at 4%, 5%, even 6% interest rate, but you can allow inflation to run up those rents and therefore revenues and therefore net operating income by what's it running now, 8% a year at least, it could create massive, at least paper wealth for you. Now, it may just be that you're keeping up with inflation, but that's a lot better than falling behind every year. And I think a lot of other asset types do that. Real estate has this amazing ability to keep up or stay ahead of inflation for the most part. Is it too late? Are interest rates already, have they already risen so much that you can't get in there and be on the same side of the government as far as getting that long-term fixed rate interest rate and then riding out the inflation as it comes? Or are there still opportunities to get in there and get some fixed rate in? Because like you said, it used to be the interest rates were 20%, right? I don't imagine we're going there, but historically we're still at pretty low interest rates. I think I can only answer that. Any of us can only answer that really in a rear view mirror, because if somehow or another, if interest rates fall back to where they were, I mean, the effective rate in the threes, two years from now, which I cannot imagine, but if it happens, maybe we did miss the window this time, or at least for a short time. But overall, like you said, I think we're at historically low interest rate times. So I think this is what's more important. If you can find deals that have a significant amount of intrinsic value that's not tapped or harvested, however you want to look at it, by the current owner, you can outpace, significantly outpace any interest increase or any other cost increases you might have. And I think that's more important than where we are in the cycle. It's, it's finding that value add. I mean, Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger and Howard Marks and Ray Dalio, they've made a fortune on value investing, as they call it. And if we can value invest in the real estate world, honestly, whether the interest rate is at 3% or 8%, we can often outpace that significantly. And the deals we invest in, that's what we see all the time. So talk a little bit about intrinsic value. That term is thrown around a lot. It's the value add stuff mostly. But can you talk specifically, maybe even by asset class, what you mean by intrinsic value and how do I recognize that when I see it? I could talk about this all day. You're going to have to rein me in probably. If you can acquire an asset from a mom and pop operator, you'll find that often that mom and pop operator doesn't have the desire or the resources or the knowledge to improve the asset and create more revenue and net operating income and therefore create more value. An example of that would be, I mean, here's a super simple one. Let's say I have a self-storage facility I acquired for $2 million dollars and it happens to be in a great location, let's say $3 million to make it simple. Let's say I borrow $2 million on that and I have a million in equity in it, $3 million 
self-storage facility. If it's in a great location to add U-Haul, this is just one simple example out of dozens. I add U-Haul, let's say I can make 3,000 a month commission on that. You can do much more than that. I know people making much, much more than that. Let's say 3,000 a month. I know people making a lot less than that, just to be clear, in self-storage, in U-Haul. But 3,000 a month is $36,000 a year. Divide 36,000 a year. Backing up the commercial real estate formula for value is the value is the net operating income divided by the cap rate, which you know, most of your listeners know. But 36000 a year divided by 6% or 0.06, you just create 600000 in value from one thing you can do. Well, that's intrinsic value that basically that opportunity was there for the previous owner, but it took the new owner to unlock it. Now, 600000 in value on a $3 million facility, that's, what is that, 20%? ROI day one, but it's a 60% ROI on the equity. So that equity holder now, instead of having a million dollars in equity, has 1.6. Or let's say that operator added a retail store with locks, boxes, tape, and scissors. Or let's say they raised rents to market levels. Let's say it was 20% higher. Let's say there were six acres out back and they could add RV and boat storage. That's huge. Adding a billboard filling 40 vacant units, 40 vacant units at $125 a unit. That's 60,000 a year, but divided by a 6% cap rate, that's a million dollars increased value just from 40 vacant units. And lots of mom and pop operators have much more vacancy than that. So those are just some examples in self-storage, but there's examples in every asset class that we know about. That's really well said. And I think there's a couple of things in there is is one part of the reason I've found that the mom and pops a lot of times don't do this is maybe they're not sophisticated enough, but also they might have owned it for 30 years, have paid down their mortgage, and they don't even need it. They're just fine to let it go. And then someone like you or the operator can come in and really do that value add. And the other thing, you mentioned the leverage. That increases your returns significantly. And I've heard people say, well, one of the, the negatives of syndications as a passive investor is you can't use leverage. And my point is the leverage is in the deal. You're not going to get the leverage at the bank, but the asset manager is going to get the leverage. So you still have the leverage, correct? Absolutely. Using the Buffett mindset, hopefully a professional investor who has their own skin in the game and their own team and track record, they know how to leverage that better than most of us would on our own. We have an operator we invest with who comes in at 65% leverage, so just less than my example a minute ago. But literally within a year, they usually have a 35% LTV, loan to value. Now, how do they do that? Well, they might pay the loan down a tiny bit, but they mainly do it by increasing the value, the denominator in the loan to value equation. But think about what that does. It's more important even than that, Jim. Not only is increasing the value making you feel better, it's actually increasing the debt service coverage ratio and therefore increasing the margin of safety. What I mean by the DSCR is that 35% LTV guy, his debt service coverage ratio is about 2.5. 2.5 means there's a 2.5 to 1 ratio between the net operating income and the debt payment. On a given month, they might be making, to make it simple, $25,000 net income after all their costs, but their debt payment's only 10000 In a terrible economy or a pandemic or a 9-11 or whatever, they could lose a whole lot of occupancy and a whole lot of rent and still be way above their debt payment. And that's what we love about real estate to survive and even thrive through a recession. That's really well said. The way you explain the DSCR, that's awesome. How many times can the net operating income cover the debt service? The way you explained that was perfect. So that, that really shows you the security of your investment because if you have all this income, even if your income goes in half, you're still going to be able to pay the mortgage, which is if you can't pay the mortgage, that's when you get into trouble, especially with adjustable interest rates, correct? Yeah, that's absolutely right. We hope to invest. We typically invest with operators who have fixed interest rates. But I mean, there are some components or sometimes they do have an adjustable rate, especially if there's a lot of value add. That's absolutely true. I mean, even if with an adjustable rate, let's say that $10,000 a month payment went 
I mean, to a horrible level, let's say 15 or 18,000, you'd still have more than enough to cover it. You'd be adding that value and you hopefully wouldn't be forced to sell. I heard the other day about a Walmart, a guy who owned a, I think it was a Walmart or a strip center around a Walmart. His uh, value of that building or the strip center went down significantly since interest rates went up. I mean, we're not seeing a lot of this yet, but we will. And he's like, why do I care? I'm still making 20,000 a month free and clear. What do I care what the value went down? I plan to hold it long-term. And that's one thing we, again, love about real estate, especially commercial real estate. Back to the speculation versus investing. If you're in the stock market and over the last few months you saw your statement, right? It might be down 20%, 30% or something like that. I have no idea the value of all my real estate holdings and I don't care because I'm still getting the same cash flow that I got six months ago. Now, six months from now, perhaps that cash flow will go down a little bit if rents don't work out or you know there might be some troubles, but it's not gonna drop 20 or 30% overnight like the stock market is. So that's another reason for investing in real estate. Agreed, I love that. I wanna talk a little bit about a multi-asset fund. Your fund has several asset classes in it, mobile home parks, self-storage, RV parks, maybe a little bit of multifamily in there that gives built-in diversification to the investor. That's easy to see. What are some of the other advantages and some of the other reasons for investing in a multi-asset fund besides just the, hey, you get, you get a couple different flavors of ice cream there? I'm going to come with from, at this from a slightly different angle. If Michael Phelps, as a kid, would have decided somehow magically that he wanted to get 28 medals, 23 gold and five more in the Olympics, he could have and probably would have thought, oh, gosh, I've got to go learn to do high jump, long jump, javelin, 400 meter shot put, who knows what else, and pool. Instead, he hyper-focused on the swimming pool and by being hyper-focused on one thing, we all know the book, The One Thing by Gary Keller and Jay Papazon, he was able to have much more success. And I don't think we've ever, Jim, I don't think we would have ever heard of Michael Phelps if he would have tried to do what Jim Thorpe did a hundred years ago and have six or 10 or 20 different events. Well, by being a multi-asset fund, we're able to find operators who are obsessed with one thing, whether it's RV parks, self-storage, mobile home parks, light industrial. and then But we're able to diversify and put them together in a fund that allow investors to make one investment and get in perhaps a hundred different assets. If you wanted to get in a hundred different assets with eight different operators across 20 different states in six asset classes, I mean, if you wanted to do 50000 or even a $25,000 minimum across 100 assets, I mean, what would that be? Millions of dollars you'd need to put in. Most people don't have that or don't want to put that much in. And with a multi-asset fund, you can put in 50000 for example, and you can be spread across all that diversification, if you will. I'll take a breath and see if we're on the right path here. Comparing it to the world most people uh, wander into, which is the uh, stock market mutual funds, it sounds like you're describing almost a mutual fund, like an index fund almost, but it's not an index fund because you are specifically picking operators, you're not just taking every operator. What does that do to the returns? Meaning, if I was to pick one really awesome sponsor, am I going to get better returns than going with you where you're doing blended through different sponsors, different asset classes, is that going to dull my returns? So let me answer that two ways. Number one, yes, it could dull your returns. And that would be what I would call the diversification tax. I'm saying that loosely, but you get my point. In other words, you're paying maybe a small percentage, maybe 1% of your return to be diversified across these different asset classes. The 1% was a complete example. That was, I just threw that out. The offsetting factor to that is we get better deals. For example, yesterday, my business partner, Ben, was in Nevada doing due diligence on a self-storage fund we're really excited to invest with. If they've passed through all our due diligence screens, we're still working on it. Well, they offered us a much better deal than a retail investor would get. We're getting a piece of the general partnership. We have another operator who has a 65-35 split, but they gave us a, I think a 80-20 or maybe a 75-25 split, much better than the investor would get. So that's an offsetting factor, if that makes sense. 
I can't say that everybody's returns will be better with us, but it's not nearly as costly as you might think at a glance. Hey, left fielders, this is Julian McClurkin. When I'm not on the court with the Harlem Globetrotters, I'm the chief storyteller for Tribe Vest. Now, you might be thinking, why would Tribe Vest hire a Globetrotter? <laughs> well, through my travels around the world, I've met so many amazing people and heard their incredible stories. And it's no different at Tribe Vest. My job is to share the stories of people investing together as a group, as a tribe. TribeVest allows groups to pool their capital, set up their LLCs and bank accounts, help with operating agreements, funding rounds, and so much more. Whether you're investing with other dads from your kids' preschool class or getting into real estate syndications with people around the country like LFI infielder Brian Pawnell, TribeVest helps them all make it happen. If you want to hear more about stories about TribeVest's customers, just check out TribeVest's YouTube channel. And if you're already ready to start investing as a group, Head on over to TribeVest.com today. The first annual Spartan Investor Summit is an exclusive two-day experience on California's iconic Lake Tahoe. 50 serious investors and eight amazing speakers are gathering at the Landing Resort and Spa for this intimate event focused on knowledge sharing, meaningful connections, and recession-resistant investment strategies that will help you live your best life. Featured speakers include Clint Coons, Rich Fetke, Rom LaPointe, Vicki Schiff, and Toby Mathis, along with Spartan's own Scott Lewis, Ryan Gibson, and Ben Lapidus. If you're ready to learn more about recession-resistant investment strategies while meeting like-minded leaders from around the country, click the link on our podcast page to learn more about the sessions, speakers, and adventures that await at the Spartan Investor Summit. Space is limited, so don't wait. When you diversify inside of the fund, we've talked about asset class is one of the big ways you diversify inside the fund. Do you also look at market and geography? And and what other things do you look at as you're trying to build that out? Or do you just go after quality sponsors and let them pick the the ways and you kind of get natural diversification? Or do you target certain markets or, or sponsors and things like that? Warren Buffett, he finds, he and Charlie Munger for Berkshire Hathaway, they find durable assets or durable asset classes, whatever you want to call it. And then they go and look for the best management teams they can find that do those durable assets, those great assets really, really well. That's exactly what we do. We don't focus on geography. In other words, it's not like we're trying to get more in New England or Florida or Texas. We let the operators pick that. We feel like that, having the best sponsor, far outweighs being in the best geography. That said, we love it when sponsors avoid California and a few other locations that are just harder to operate in. We talked about asset classes, RV parks. This seems to be something that is becoming more popular now than it was a few years ago. A couple years ago, I didn't even know it was possible to invest in RV parks, didn't think about it. Similar to car washes, right? They're both kind of the the new asset classes that are popping up. Why are you looking into RV parks? What do you see there? Talk to us about the, the asset class. RV camping increased five times as much in 2020. Remember, that was right in the middle of COVID. Five times as much as it did in 2019. 26% of new RV campers were new to RV camping in 2020 during the pandemic. Right now, 11 million households or more, a little more than that own RVs. But here's the amazing statistic. 9.6 million plan to buy an RV within five years. That really plays out now you're talking about what is that, an 80% increase in RV ownership, but there's something that's more powerful than all that, in my opinion at least. The Airbnb model or the sharing economy model that's popped up so rapidly within RVs have turned any RV into a mobile rental unit. Just Let's just play this out. If you own an RV, instead of using it four weekends a year, you can now rent it out for let's say 20 weekends a year. So that's five times as much use. Well, not only are sales going up of the RVs, but the usage is now potentially going up much higher 
Who's that going to put a strain on or a constraint on? It's going to be the RV parks because that same RV pad might be used, in my example, three or four or five times as often. And that's exactly what we're seeing. My neighbor has one of those huge, really expensive RVs. I think it's a Winnebago or something. He said he has to look a year out now or more to book an RV space. And COVID just massively increased this trend. And you can imagine why. A study before COVID said that it's 47% less expensive to take an RV and camping trip than a comparable car hotel vacation and 62% less expensive than a comparable air flying and hotel vacation. We're really, really excited about this asset class. I'll take a breath so you can ask me more questions, but uh, we love RVs. Is this like mobile home parks where they're not building any new ones? Because, you know, if you say there are going to be 80% more people out there going around in motorhomes, and I know that you can add all the amenities and make current places nicer, just like value add, like you talked about with any other asset class, but are they act- is there space? Are they actually building them so there's more capacity? They are. One of the good things about RV parks is that a lot of them are really remote. The top RV park in America, according to USA Today, is in, I can't even say the name, but it's like Pelahatchee, Mississippi. USA Today just said a few weeks ago that was the top RV park in the U.S., and that's one we did not invest in, but we invest heavily with that operator with in his other deals. That's it's it's remote, yet it's only a couple hours from a lot of major cities. My wife and I stayed one way outside of Fort Worth, like 45 minutes west. It felt like it was in the middle of nowhere. I was driving there at 11 o'clock at night, feeling nervous, like, where are we going? But once we got there, it was like a resort. They had a water, a two and a half million dollar water park they added, a $600,000 lake they added. They had Wibbits, which is a $200,000 feature, put like an obstacle course out on the lake and kids rent it for $17 an hour. That's a total of a thousand an hour, by the way, in the summer that, that those things rent for in the season. They've got drive-in theater, face painting, rodeo stuff. They've got human foosball, jumping stuff, an amusement part putt-putt golf they have shirt t-shirt painting and gem mining all these different things are added as value adds they took a three and a half million dollar rv park they bought they added space out behind it they added like a hundred acres to add a lot more sites to it turned out like in the end it's like an 18 million dollar park but the value based on cash flow once they're up and running is like over 30 million how does a passive investor like me, like I know what metrics I'm looking at when it's a multifamily property, right? I want to see what rent increases pro forma are going to be. What's the the uh, the tax situation? Are they are they putting in an increase in taxes in the pro forma? What's the the vacancy and the economic vacancy? Those are some of the factors I really focus in on. So what do I focus on in RV parks? I mean, I have no idea. So how does a passive investor analyze that? It depends on the strategy, Jim. One strategy is to get an RV park that has a, like at Smith Mountain Lake here in Virginia, the RV park that recently sold for seven or $8 million. It's not even a very large park. It doesn't have hardly any amenities, but it's at this awesome lake in the Blue Ridge Mountains. A lot of those RVs sit there all year. And so the strategy with that one is lower rents, very, very high occupancy. Another strategy is like the one I just described where you have a resort type destination location and the occupancy might only be three or four days a week, six months a year, let's say, or like Zion National Park or Grand Canyon, it would be year round probably, but you get the point. Lower occupancy, but much higher rates. I mean, they have golf carts that rent for 75 a day. I mean, there you go. It kind of doubles the revenue right there. Those are two completely different strategies. You'd have to figure out the strategy first and then dial in to see how well that operator is doing within that strategy. And then you want to ask really very detailed questions. We have a person on our team who nails or who understands all those numbers and takes a look at those. But it's still pretty new. There's probably lots of other strategies I didn't even mention, you know, in between those two. How many 
operators are there or or you know how many have taken a rv park full cycle and done all the value add and sold it are these hold forever what what's what are the operators like how many are there are people just gobbling up all kinds of mom and pop things or are there a few big operators out there there's 8750 privately held rv parks in the u.s 94 percent of them are held by operators who have one to four properties. It doesn't mean they're mom and pops. It doesn't mean they're horrible, but likely they're, you know, if they have one or two properties, they're probably considered mom and pops. They probably don't have the desire, resources, or knowledge to improve the park and add all those amenities. Like you said earlier, they don't need to. They're getting incredible cash flow. Then there are two very large operators that operate REITs. One is Equity Lifestyles, Sam Zell, and the other is Sun Communities. If there are any others, it's hard to find. We spent literally three years wondering if we could find a professional operator that wasn't a REIT, then wasn't a mom and pop, and we finally found one. We were so happy that we did, but we we don't know of any others. Yeah, that's interesting, and I think there's a lot of new ones starting out there, I think. So three, five years from now, you'll be able to find them, but I think it's great to get in on on the ground floor. I want to switch tracks a little bit and go back to vetting of sponsors because we talked about this last time and it's super important and it's one of the things that that we really concentrate on at left field investors is vetting the sponsor but it's different when we're vetting capital allocator like yourself who has a fund you're not the actual operator you're going out and finding the operators so you're doing the operator vetting and of course you're doing it much better than an individual would do because you're a company and you have more resources and all that. So I get all of that. How do I vet you or vet any capital allocator to make sure that you know we're in alignment, that you're the kind of sponsor that I want to work with? What, what do you recommend the process is for that? There's not many out there that do exactly what we do. It's a little hard to answer in a sense because I don't know what other allocators do exactly, but I can speak to you for us. If I was looking at investing as a third party in a fund, I would say, okay, so tell me about their experience, their internal team, who they have on the team, how they vet the operators. We all know about Brian Burke's book, The Hands-Off Investor. Are they following the principles of that meaty 300-page book to vet their sponsors, which is just a very long list that we covered a lot of last time. How much skin do they have in the game? What type of fees they have on the front end and the back end and asset management fees? What type of waterfall preferred return? Keep in mind, your hurdle or your preferred return is a split on a split. If I say to you as a fund manager, instead of a 60-40 split, like one of our operators that we've invested $47 million with, we get an 80-20 split. That sounds great, but keep in mind, we have a split on a split. So if we have 80-20 and that operator is given 80-20, you need to realize it's 64%, 80% of 80% you're getting 64%. At 64 is still better than 60, but we have other fees and things too, which are going to knock that down to your point 15 minutes ago that there's a cost. When I think about that, I think, what am I getting for that cost? Well, we mentioned diversification across asset types and operators and geographies and all that. As an investor, I better be expecting a much better gross return. If I'm only going to get 64% minus some fees on top of that, If you can picture an 80-20 curve, you know, the 80-20 rule, it's fractal. The top 20% of the top 20%, you can prove this. Perry Marshall's great book, 80-20 Sales and Marketing, proves this. If you can find the top 20% of the top 20%, which would be the top 4% of operators, they're going to produce perhaps the top 80% of the top 80% of the profits, the top 64%, in other words. They better be doing that and they better have a track record and they better be able to prove they're doing that because if that operator, if that fund manager is able to get twice the revenue and twice the profits, well, even if there's a 64% split rather than a 70 or 80%, which you'd love to see, hopefully as an investor, I would see the value in that. Now I want to get into the weeds for a minute. Uh, left fielders, we have a membership group called The Infield, and we have a forum where people are always talking about deals and sponsors and investment strategies. 
And in the forum, we were talking about your fund because there's people that are investing in it and others that are interested in it. And people were talking about the preferred return. Then, you know, we had a conversation. It's not really a preferred return like we normally think of in a typical syndication. It's a hurdle rate. Can you explain to us what the hurdle rate is and what a preferred return is and what the difference between those two are? In my mind, and I'm probably being a little technical here, but preferred return is anytime the investor gets paid first. We have a preferred return. Most everybody else has a preferred return. I think where the difference is, is it a cumulative preferred return or non-cumulative? Cumulative is better, I think, because it gives the investor, let's say that the preferred return hurdle is 7%, just as an example. Well, if I hit 5% this year, the hurdle is 7 that I'm banking, the investor's banking 2% for the future. And next year I hit, let's say six, they're banking another percent. Next, next year, let's say we refinance and we hit 10, that first seven plus those three that are banked all goes to the investor. That's a cumulative preferred return. Then everything above that split, let's just say 60, 40 or 70, 30. Ours, the way we modeled this out, and part of it was because of SEC regulations that we had to comply with, we decided to be a publicly registered fund. We are a registered investment advisor as well. We have an 80-20 split on the cash flow above a 10% hurdle, but that hurdle stands alone every quarter. We expect that our fund will produce roughly 5 to 8% annual return. If we ever exceed 10%, which is unlikely, then Wellings Capital, my company, would get a 20% split of that cash flow from operations. Anything below 10% annualized, it's really 2.5% a quarter, all goes to the investor. Effectively, we expect all the money from operations, effectively, to go to the investor. All the money from refinance to go to the investor. We used to take a split on that. All the money from the principal from the sale of an asset to go to the investor. And then there's an 80-20 split on the capital gain or the profit at the end is what we effectively expect. And we also pass 100% of the depreciation to our investors, which is not a question you ask, but I'm just throwing that in. Is that why you put the hurdle at 10 instead of like a typical pref is like seven? Because in the typical pref, you get that seven and then everything above that is subject to the split. Well, if you have a 10%, you don't have any catch-up provisions. That's the main difference. But unless you exceed 10, you're not getting paid until the end on any of this on uh, from operations. That's right. That is definitely not something we originally planned, but the SEC regs, they, our attorney said, that hey, that's what they want. That's what they want to see. And so, you know, our view was we put it at 10% so the investor can know we're doing everything we can to take care of them first. And I think that's important, right? That's alignment of interests. And I know you, you are invested in the fund as well, but it's sometimes the preferred return is always confusing. Most, as you said, syndicators seem to do it. There's a few that don't. And then when you throw in this, this hurdle return instead, then it just sometimes it can get confusing because people think, oh, that's a pref. When, as you said, it is sort of a pref, but it's not the cumulative part. It could end up, depending on the back end split, you could end up paying out more to investors at a 10% hurdle with an 80-20 than, say, somebody who had the same exact results who had a 7% pref with a 70-30 split on the back end, right? I mean, it could turn out that, that yours is better, perhaps, or theirs is better, perhaps. It just depends on how the deal turns out. We ran lots of models, and we even included our CFO, who was actually a guy who was an executive with Vanguard for 25 years under John Bogle, we came to the conclusion that it was roughly the same based on the likely returns that we actually internally believe this will that will happen here. I think while what you said is exactly right, Jim, I think the bigger factor is what I said five minutes ago, and that is if we're really, really good at picking assets and operators and much better than average, then we're going to, in theory, the, re the total returns would be so much better that that split would be almost irrelevant. I mean, the, the difference in split, I should say, the cumulative versus non. No, that, that's a great explanation because a lot of this stuff, you know, when you get technical like this, if you don't dig into it and ask the questions, and sometimes people, they don't want to ask the question because they think it's offensive or the syndicator won't answer. And I know you're not like that, but my point is, 
if you're not going to ask the syndicator, then you shouldn't invest. If the syndicator operator isn't going to give you a quality explanation with no defensiveness, then I don't want to invest with them anyway. And I know when I reached out to you on this, you were like, yep, let's talk about it. Let's, let's hammer it out. And I appreciate that. And that's a big deal. The last question I always ask, and you answered this the last time, so we get to see if your answers are the same or have you changed your answers at all. But what's a great podcast or two that you like to listen to? And that is Jay Papazon's brainchild. He's the co-author of The One Thing with Gary Keller. I have incredible respect for Jay. And The One Thing podcast just helps me stay focused on what's important. Another is We Study Billionaires. One thing I love about that is they'll look at Buffett and all these great investors like Howard Marks and Ray Dalio and all these guys, and they'll study it. And I love to, in my brain, transfer that stock and bond and company investing over to real estate to see how it relates. In fact, I'm writing a book on that. The one thing is a new one to me. I also listen to We Study Billionaires, but I'm going to check out the one thing. And those are different. So it means you're adding your podcast list. So that's fantastic. Did I say Hunter Thompson's last time? No, but we'll add that in because last time you said the real estate guys in bigger pockets, you were going with the big guys. You know what? I mean, I go through cycles. Like sometimes I think I'll never miss a We Study Billionaires. And then a month later, I miss three of them. I mean, I have to be honest at where all, all of our schedules are up and down. And when I get on the road, I get more time to listen. So I'm looking forward to heading up to Columbus soon. We are super excited. By the time this airs, we will be weeks away from the meetup in the left field in Columbus, Ohio. We're super excited. Again, Paul is going to be our keynote speaker. We're grateful that you're uh, willing to do that. We're excited to hear what you have to say. So to end the podcast, if uh, people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way they can do that? I wrote a couple of eBooks. One is just basically how to, where's the on-ramp for commercial real estate investing? Others were on self-storage, mobile home parks, RV parks. You can get all those at Wellings Capital. That's W-E-L-L-I-N-G-S, wellingscapital.com slash resources. Excellent. Thank you very much for being on again. We appreciate it. We can't wait to see you in Columbus in a few weeks. Thanks, Jim. Thank you. We would like to introduce one of our trusted partners, Ashcroft Capital, to the left field investors community at Ashcroft. They focus on capital preservation while still having upside potential through their value-add funds. They are proud to announce their second fund. The Ashcroft Value-Add Fund 2 is now open to investors. The Ashcroft Value-Add Fund 2 has been created with one singular purpose in mind, to reduce risk to investors. The Ashcroft Value-Add Fund 2 will continue to use the same conservative business plan Ashcroft was founded with acquiring quality multifamily assets, and offering value-add opportunity in strong performing markets throughout the country. To learn more about Ashcroft Capital's investment criteria or about the markets and properties they are targeting, please download their latest AVAF2 Frequently Asked Questions Guide at ashcroftcapital.com slash leftfield. That's ashcroftcapital.com slash leftfield. It's always an interesting conversation with Paul, and today was certainly no exception. He talked about how he lost money speculating, and part of that was because he thought that he was investing. And that's kind of how I started out my career, because I was a stock market mutual fund guy, and I thought I was investing all this time, and I couldn't understand why my wealth wasn't just taking off like I thought it should. And it's because I was mostly speculating. I wasn't getting a current benefit in the form of cash flow for my investments or speculations, as I now call them. And then he came out with this, wealth is really assets that produce cash flow. And I know that's basic and easy and yeah, we all know it, but the way he said it made total sense to me. Wealth is assets that produce cash flow. And that's what I'm trying to accumulate, assets so that I just have continuous cash flow and I don't have to worry about the depletion of my assets, which is what 401k and stock market investors have to worry about. And he also said, and he's right, speculation is not bad. You just need to know you're doing it. And I think that's the key. You know, I speculate in Bitcoin and some of the pre-IPOs and some development deals. I just know it's speculation. I keep it to a small amount of my portfolio and I make sure everything else has cash coming in from it. He also talked about debt service coverage ratio, the DSCR. And that's something that we have on our deal analyzer, one of the tools we have for infielders. 
it's hard to understand when you're just looking at it. But again, he has a way, Paul has a way of explaining things that make them easier to understand. And he used the example, if you have 25000 in NOI and 10000 in debt, that's a two and a half times DSCR. And what that means is your NOI could decrease quite a bit before you're not you're in danger of not covering your debt so that was really a great explanation i thought and again he, he has all these terms that, that that really make sense to me diversification tax that's the tax you pay effective a tax for reduced return that you get from this hyper diversification and in exchange you have less risk which again makes sense but when you say it that way it just kind of hits me diversification tax so i like the way he said that then we got into some conversations on RV parks that huge growth is coming in RV parks. And a lot of that is fueled by the Airbnb type where you can rent an RV park so or an RV. So it's not just sitting in your driveway or in storage. It's used a lot more, which means a lot more RVs are on the road. And so this is an awesome asset class, I think, that is poised for growth. So we'll see. He also, you know, he's constantly throwing in Warren Buffett comments and it's interesting because warren buffett his stock is publicly traded but he is a buy and hold investor of cash flowing assets so it makes sense and paul is constantly comparing that to real estate which i think really at least for me it it helps everything be a lot more understandable and then finally i just like the way that you can have a conversation with paul about his structure and his deal how it's a little bit different than others and people might misunderstand it but he is an open book he is willing to just have the conversation he does not get defensive he explains it and even said it might be a wash he thinks maybe it'll be turn out better if the deal really turns out well but hurdle rate is different than the standard preferred return and he was happy to explain that to you to us and that's one of the things i look for in an operator are you able and willing to explain your deals and your structure without getting upset without expecting me to know something that i don't but just explaining it, helping me along, helping me understand. So that was fantastic. I really enjoyed this episode. I cannot wait for our meetup on October 21st where Paul will be the keynote speaker. So we'll hear from him again. But for now, that's it. We'll see you next time in the left field. Thanks for hanging out in left field with us today. If you're interested in becoming a left fielder, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.leftfieldinvestors.com or you can send me an email, jim at leftfieldinvestors.com. Thank you for listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. If you enjoy the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and review the show. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing said on the show should be considered financial advice. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Passive Investing from Left Field and Left Field Investors. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.